0: You're listening to the latest preaching from Brixham Community Church. I want to talk this morning uh, under the title, Who Can Stop the Lord? We sing that phrase in a song, The Lion and the Lamb, um, Who Can Stop the Lord Almighty? And in, in um, Isaiah 14, 27, it says, For the Lord Almighty has purposed, and who can thwart him? His hand is stretched out, and who can turn it back? When God is on the move, you cannot stop him. When God has an intention in mind, he will fulfill his purposes. Are you on board is the question. It's not whether God is going to do something or not. It's not whether God might change his mind. The question is, are you on board? Are you going to get on board? So in line with that, I wanted to talk about being involved but not committed. I'm not going to talk about commitment to church programs. I'm not going to talk about tithing. Don't worry. I'm going to talk about your commitment to God and following the plan that he has for you in your life, I think, as long as you get to know God more and know His character and fall in love with Jesus more and more, you'll want to serve the church and you'll want to give uh, into His work. So, I'm not here to, uh, I just want to take the pressure off again and just say, just listen, this is about you and God. Uh, so, when I talk about commitment, I, I'm just saying this perhaps because if I was sitting there, I'd be my hackles would be starting to get up because I've sat in churches where actually um, w- w- all this was addressed up way. Way of saying you need to serve because we need more people on the coffee bar, uh, or the, uh, there's going to be a big offering at the end, and it's just all a big hype up to to get people um, to serve into a, pro, a pre-existing program, which I don't even know if God set up. So it's nothing like that this morning. I, I, my heart is absolutely that God is on the move. The more people I talk to locally. And in the Christian world, the more there is a sense that we are on the cusp of something and that something we learned last week about this this realm called the heavenlies, that something is shifting in the heavenlies, and I don't normally talk like this, I'm a pretty human down-to-earth guy, Um, but there's just this sense that God is on the move. I love that phrase because it reminds me of Aslan is on the move. Um, Anyway, I just love that because there are times and seasons where God acts in a specific way in a specific geographic location. And there are people praying for our nation. There are missionaries outside of our country now looking back at the history of Britain and saying, God, would you turn that country back to what it was? So God is on the move. Are you on board? Where are you? in all of that and the best way I can find to explain the difference between involvement and commitment is eggs and bacon because in order for the farmer to have eggs and bacon on his table the chicken was involved but the pig was committed (laughs) he was willing to give something up So eggs and bacon, involvement and commitment. But here are some things I've heard Christians say when it comes to getting more involved in God, getting more close to God, spending time with him, seeking his will and saying, God, if you've got a thing that you want to do and it's going to involve sacrifice, I'm in. I'm going to lay my life on the altar. I'm going to offer myself as a living sacrifice, which is my acceptable worship to you. Here are some of the things I've heard and I've been guilty of saying myself. I'll fully follow when I fully understand. You know, that's a logical thing. I've actually seen that in the workplace as well when a leader brings in a new initiative and it's like, well, I've seen this before. When I fully get it, because I don't fully trust this leadership, when I fully get it, I'll fully buy in. That's logical and in many cases that's absolutely right to have that attitude. It's just God doesn't Expect you to be like that with him. He expects you to fully trust him and maybe later you'll understand. God doesn't work the way we work. So, although it's right to wait till you fully understand maybe a business deal or some other situation that you're committing to before you commit with God, it's just the other way around. I'll wait for others to move before I do. I'm afraid I've seen people say that and get left behind. The circumstances aren't right. <laughs> when were ever the circumstances right? Again, I remember standing, at, sorry, chatting. I mentioned Stuart Keir a couple of weeks ago, um, but talking to um, one of the leaders in, in Audacious Church in Manchester, which is still growing and it, it's new birth growth and new baptisms and not, not transfer growth. It's, it's a healthy church. And he said to me, well, to be honest, we, we just get on with it. If we think God's doing something, we just get on with it, even without resources. We just do it. Uh, and God seems to show up. I'm not going to wait for the circumstances to be right. And maybe that's right in church life, but maybe also God's speaking to you in your own personal life. I need a clearer sign before I step out. I stepped out before and got hurt. I don't think I'm ready. (laughs) You never will be. I'm not ready to stand here now. I don't mean I haven't prepared a sermon. There are other slides that follow. In the natural, I am not ready. I said earlier, I just feel too human. How could God use me? It doesn't feel right. Well, sometimes that's actually good. It depends what kind of feelings you're talking about. If you've got this sense in your spirit that's actually, there's a, there's a check in my spirit, then that's something, that's a level of spiritual maturity that you can recognise. But, but actually, sometimes people just don't feel in the flesh, in the, in the, in the human natural self, that no, it just doesn't, doesn't sit right with me, just because actually it's just a little bit awkward. Because usually when God calls you, it's pretty awkward and it challenges something. So I want to talk to you from two characters in the Bible which exemplify um, commitment and moving forward. And, and God's, God's on the move, God's doing stuff. Um, I just want to use these two characters But I think if we look at these two characters, we can learn some things from both of them. One is King Saul, and one is his son, Jonathan. And they are outlined, juxtaposed perfectly, by two chapters, one after the other, First chapter is all about, well, in my mind, I want to talk about all about Saul. And in the second chapter, we'll look at his son, Jonathan, and, and, and compare and contrast them, if you like. And then we'll wrap, I'll wrap up with five quick points as to things I believe God is saying to us as his people this morning. Okay, so let's just pray before we dig into God's word. Father God, I just thank you for your word. I treasure your word It is a beautiful thing, I don't always understand it, but I just thank you that it it is living and active, and as I read from your word this morning, I just pray that you would pierce hearts in a way that I never could with fine oratory or any other manipulative means, but Father God, you, Holy Spirit, would speak to us through your divine, Holy Spirit-inspired word in Jesus' name, amen. Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned over Israel for 42 years. Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel, 2,000 were with him at Michmash, and in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah in Benjamin, the rest of the men he sent back to their homes." The backstory is that they have just won a pretty great victory and they feel like, woohoo, things are going well. We've got the Philistines as our main army and rather than just think, well, we could just keep pushing through, pushing through, and we can push these Philistines back further, Saul has decided that I'll stand here... in uh, wherever it was, Michmash, um, with, with 2,000 men. And I'll send my son Jonathan over here about five miles away, um, just to keep an eye on the Philistines um, at Gibeah, uh, with 1,000 men. So there's 3,000 men being used, but the rest are sent home. I just want to say to you, don't send the troops home when you feel like you've just won a victory, I just feel like, you know, we've been talking about spiritual battle last week. We've been talking about living in victory. I think sometimes for us to stay in victory, the best thing we can do is not rest on our laurels. We can, the best thing we can do is not just say, oh, well, that was good. We can relax now. I just feel like there's some of us just kind of feel like, yeah, that was a great victory. It's time just to relax and settle down. I just don't feel like that's what God's saying to us today. And Saul sends a whole bunch of people home. So in my mind, what I reckon Saul is doing is thinking, well, we can relax a little bit. I'll stay here with 2,000 men. I've got Jonathan over there with 1,000 men. We'll just keep an eye on the Philistines and keep them at bay, all right? Jonathan is a feisty young thing and has other ideas. Next verse, Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Geba and the Philistines heard about it. Right, so Jonathan isn't, I don't know whether he's disobeying his dad or he just hasn't caught his dad's heart or he's just full of the spirit of God and just wants to push these uncircumcised fellows back, um, these bad guys. But he's just out for it, you know, and it's an outpost. So an outpost is not connected to the main army. It's It's a garrison of soldiers that might not be that big, but it's just this outpost. And so Jonathan just wants to pick off this outpost. Um, and off he goes. Then Saul had the... So it's Jonathan who did that, right? You got that? Now look what Saul says. Saul had, had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, Let the Hebrews hear. So all Israel heard this news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost. Interesting. And now Israel has become, an obnoxious, has become obnoxious to the Philistines. And the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal, right, there's a reason for that, but let's just think about this. Is Saul covering for Jonathan saying, look, the Philistines hate us now, are obnoxious, but it's me, that, um, it, it's me that attacked them, so I'll kind of take the blame that we've now got this, this mess going on. Or he's all just blowing his own trumpet and saying, look, I've attacked and we've, we've wound those Philistines up, let's all rally together. I kind of feel like it's the second one where he's just kind of saying, look, he's, he's blowing his trumpet around the, around the nation. So all these guys who've been sent, this is great leadership, isn't it? Right, everyone, you can go home and be with your families and be with your wives and, and thank the Lord that you've been spared and spend some time. And, and then suddenly it's, right, everybody assemble at Gilgal. We've got to fight on. It just kind of doesn't feel like there's any strong directive leadership from Saul. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, chariots. Six. So we've got 3,000 men and they've got 3,000 chariots. 6,000 charioteers and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. When the Israelites saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets, among rocks and in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead which is um, an, a further 10 miles away from where they were. So um, where, where Jonathan kicked off this little outpost and, and caused a stink um, was 10 miles, roughly, from where, he's a, where Saul has now assembled the troops. So it's kind of a safe distance, but there's a reason he's here, and, and that's because Samuel's told him he's going to meet him here soon, but I'll get on to that soon. And then, but some of them, now they're running scared. They've, they've gone a further 10 miles away to cross the Jordan, out of the promised land to hide. All right, so things aren't good. The people are running scared. Samuel's told, now this is the bit I haven't told you. In chapter 10, because we're in chapter 13 at the moment, in chapter 10, Samuel, the prophet of God, has said to Saul, I will meet you in seven days at, uh, at Gilgal. That's why, that's where Saul has said, we'll, we'll meet at Gilgal. At First, when I read it, I thought it was just Let's meet at a safe distance, 10 miles away. But actually, I think Saul's been obedient to the word of the Lord because God's told him through Samuel, I want to meet you in Gilgal in seven days' time and we're gonna, I'm going to offer a sacrifice to the Lord. So Samuel has done that. And, and so what we've got this question is, Saul's now got this dilemma. Do I just sit here for seven days knowing that there's this vast army that outnumbers, this, it feels like they outnumber the grains of sand, um, interesting really, isn't it? Because the the nation he's part of is part of a promise that his that Abraham's descendants would outnumber the grains of sand. And, and maybe that could have reminded him that actually, my God is greater than all of this. I'm, I'm a child of the promise. But anyway, he's got men running scared. He's got people all over the place. He's, he's, his numbers have shrunk down. The Philistine numbers have risen up. Um, and and the, the, the tendency is to want to rally the troops and get out and fight and seek God about it. But he's been told by the prophet of God, stay in Gilgal and wait for seven days. Ooh, what would you do? Should, what, and what should Saul do. Saul remained at Gilgal. Good, because that's what God's told him to do. And all the troops with him were quaking with fear. Not so good. Will Saul give in to the severity of circumstance and the pressure from people? Because they're quaking with fear and they want a leader who's going to take action, rally this vast army, and in the name of the Lord, smite those Philistine fellows. God can only use those who trust him absolutely and he often tests them by long delays. God has said, I will meet you at Gilgal in seven days. It doesn't matter what the circumstances are doing. It doesn't matter if it's raining or if it's thundering. It doesn't matter if there's the vastest army you could ever imagine. If God has said, stand where you are, you stand where you are and you wait. And that is actually one of the biggest tests he can put you through, is the test of waiting. Because in the waiting room, you have boring magazines and informational posters that you've read 17 times and you actually start to wonder why am i here maybe i could fix this myself is 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 he even coming what am i waiting for there's so much i could have done in this time but god has said wait and that's what saul needs to do god has said through the prophet i'm going to come we're going to do a sacrifice everything's going to be fine and god is deliberately test using this moment to test saul Saul remained at Gilgal and all the troops were were trembling with fear. He waited for seven days, as instructed, the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. That was Samuel's job. Now we're not under law here because we live in a totally different era, thanks be to God. But in, in the era of the law, where, where we're talking about the Old Testament, only the prophet or a priest should, should do this burnt offering. And Saul wasn't appointed or anointed to do that offering. And besides, it was God's instruction that Samuel would come and do this offering. But what Saul is doing is he's offering this offering to God ahead of time. He's forcing God's hand. He's trying to anyway i've called this talk who can stop the lord almighty or who can stop god but actually who can speed him up nobody at the time so at this point in the story saul is trying to speed god up he's trying to he's, well samuel's not shown up it's past my appointment time it's like god's on nhs timing i've been sitting in this waiting room but God said, wait seven days. He's waited seven days and God hasn't, or Samuel hasn't shown up. So Saul thinks, I'm going to take things into my own hands. Ever felt like doing that? And ever been guilty of doing that? Has it ever led you anywhere good? When you've taken things into your own hands, has it ever done you any good? When you've taken things into your own hands, has anybody here done that or is it just me? when you've kind of rationalized and reasoned, I'm going to do this. I'm going to sort this out. You can use logic. I, I, my, my best way out of God's will is logic. That's my best way out. I like logic. And that's, that's what I'm going to do. And, and I reckon Saul had a bit of logic because he'd waited seven. I've, well, I've done the obedient thing. I've kept the law. I've kept the instruction. I've waited seven days. And Samuel hasn't turned up. We need God right now, so I'm going to press in, and I'm going to do that. I'm going to go again. I know it's not exactly the instruction that I know I'm not supposed to do this offering, but God will understand. Have you ever ever said that? God will understand, just because you're in that gray area moment. Listen, you know. I talked about things feeling right. You know deep down, if you're a child of God, and you're praying, and you're you're filled with the Spirit, you, you know deep down inside when something's not right. I mean, even non-Christians get this. A lot of them, a lot of, a lot of us all have a good conscience. We know deep down inside when something just doesn't sit right. And Saul is in that territory. So he offers the burnt offering on day seven, because that's how long he's waited. Just as he'd finished making the offering, Samuel arrived. <laughs> and Saul went out to greet him. Sammy boy, how you doing? Yeah, yeah, I think, no, things are, well, things are, quite treacherous at the moment but um yeah there's this vast army you've probably seen them probably yeah yeah I know all about the army I knew they were coming before they came possibly and uh and uh, and, and I've come to do th- what's that smell Saul what what, <laughs> what is that and uh, oh well, well I didn't think you were coming in fact we'll read the conversation here what have you done asked Samuel. Now, this isn't Samuel being a jobsworth. Well, it's uh, my union says that I'm the only one who's supposed to allow to do offerings. This is not like that at all. This is Samuel's reverence for the instruction of the Lord, doing things God's way. See, the thing about Saul is God didn't really want Israel to have a king, but the people wanted a king. Saul, for me, represents man's appointment, now, God gave Saul, God did choose Saul, but it's after man's coercion, if you like, or pleading with God, All right, you, God says, all right, you can have a king, but it won't go well for you. And for me, all of Saul's life is wrapped up in this story of... Doing things man's way rather than God's way. And Samuel is here, this this confrontation between between the man who represents God, i.e. Samuel, and the man who represents man's appointment and man's ways of doing things. And there's this collision in this moment of, what have you done? You just seek my face and do things my way, and 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 yes, there was a bit of a test there, a bit of a waiting game. Yeah, I reckon Samuel's hiding behind a rock, just seeing. I'm going to wait. I said seven days, and he got his Timex watch out, and he was like, "I'm going to wait to the second, see if see if Saul can hold his nerve." And even Samuel's looking over his shoulder at the Philistines, thinking, "Oh, oh, I'll go now." That bit's not in the Bible. I said I reckon before it. Okay. Saul replied, when I saw that the, this is Saul speaking now, when I saw that the men were scattering, so my human companions had left me, my human help, and that you did not come at the set time, and that the Philistines were assembling in Mitchmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favour, so I felt compelled to offer the burnt Offering, here's that phrase again. I felt compelled. What you mean is you were panicked. Have I felt compelled. Have I felt compelled to take action. When deep down in your spirit, if you're really true with yourself, if actually you stop and slow down, take a breath, have some time on your own, grab a cup of coffee and a journal and pray is what you feel compelled to do actually what you feel is right? I felt compelled. And for me, that is very much in Saul's nature, and I think we can all relate to it. So please don't misunderstand me as knocking Saul as someone I'm I'm superior to. Um, I I think that it's wonderful that his story is here because we can relate to it um, in our own inferiority and, and, and whatever, you know. We all make these mistakes, Uh, but this is one of the character flaws of Saul is he reacts, he reacts, he keeps reacting. He reacts to the crowd, he reacts to circumstances and that is there to teach us what not to do because every time we see that it doesn't work. You've done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You've not kept the command of the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he'd have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. That's going to be David, King David. King David was a man after God's own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Then Samuel left Gilgal and uh, that was a bit of a mic drop, wasn't it? It's like, yeah, so it's you're screwed, bye. Then Samuel left Gilgal and went up to Gibeah in Benjamin and that's the place where named after the tribe of Benjamin who settled there in Benjamin and Saul counted the men who were with him how many, can you remember how many he had with him at the very beginning? 2,000, good, good class. Uh, there's now 600 men with him. It's not going well. They're all hiding in thickets and behind bushes. and, and um, It's like a terrifying version of hide and seek on a national scale. It's just not good for Saul. Think how Saul feels now. Who's he going to hang out with? Who's he going to turn to? He's just had this dreadful news. I mean, that is horrifying announcement from Samuel, isn't it? You know, because his it, whole descendants, it means a lot to Saul to think my, my family line is going to be this awesome family that's going to be established by God. He's had this huge, um, I don't know, horrible, horrible news from, uh, from Samuel. What's Saul going to do now? How is he going to react? Well, It'd be nice to look first at, um, well, as we go, at, at Jonathan in the next chapter. So Jonathan is still uh, on the scene, and he's near the Philistines, and he's, he's, he's amongst those 600, so he's faithful to his dad. Now, to be absolutely honest with you, I've, I've read ahead, and um, sa- uh, Jonathan, the, the son of Saul, um, He's not perfect either. He's, he's brilliant. He's fantastic in this. And the contrast I want to bring is, is one of is someone who acts in, in God's favour. Um, but in, in the next chapter, um, Saul has instructed uh, the army not to eat until they beat the Philistines for that day or whatever. And, and Jonathan doesn't know. And he finds some honey and he eats some honey. And, and then his army says, oh, you shouldn't have done that. And he says, yeah, well, what's my dad? Oh, he doesn't say it like that. He says, well, my dad's wrong. And I I don't think he should have done that. He should honor his parents. So I don't think he's the most perfect person, Jonathan. And perhaps this next chapter shows that there's this tension between honoring your parents and and, and honoring God. That's quite a difficult tension to play out, especially if you've got non Christian parents um, or if you're. Parents and you've got children who, who are, are more holy than you and you know, <laughs> they should be honouring me. Um, anyway, so um, one day Jonathan, son of Saul, said to his young armour bearer, come, let's go to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he didn't tell his dad. And this is what I'm saying. I don't, I don't know if that's right or wrong or not, but um, this is what Jonathan does. The Bible just reports what happens without judgment very often. Um, It's up to us to figure out whether it was right or wrong. uh, Verse 2, Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree in Migron. There were about 600 men with him, which we got at the end of the last chapter. So Saul doesn't look like someone who's about to take action. He's under a pomegranate tree, Um, still a little bit removed from the fighting, from the action. And I just reckon Jonathan's agitated. Remember, he's this feisty young man who's already um, had a go at taking out one of the outposts of the Philistines. He's just ready for action. But just that one contrast between him and and David, who's going to be the next king, David has opportunity after opportunity to um, discredit Saul, and he never does. He says, I will not attack the Lord's anointed. Uh, That's just the one thing that agitates me about Jonathan is that he he kind of says something about his dad in the next chapter, and he's doing this without his dad knowing, and um, I I feel like David was the one. He was the one after God's own heart. But there's so much similarity here in spirit between Jonathan and David, and that's why they become such great friends later on. Saul is under the pomegranate tree, I, I personally think he's sulking. Among whom was Ahijah. Now, why on earth would the writer tell us this information? Why is this important? This is a story about how God um, defeats the Philistines long-term and, and just about some kings and the people around him. Why does it matter? These people don't come into it ever again, right? Among whom, this is Saul. the company Saul is choosing to keep in this moment, was a who was wearing an ephod. That's that's like a priestly garment. So he's with a priest, or he's cert- yeah he's, he's with a priest. He's certainly with someone, and who's priested up. He's robed up. Okay, so he's with a who's wearing an ephod. So okay, that looks good. That looks all right, because he's hanging around with people who are on God's side, isn't he? He was. This is a son of Ichabod's brother, a high tub son of, they had, they, had a, they had a tall house with a bath at the top, a high tub. He was son of Ichabod's brother, a high tub, son of Phineas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh. No one was aware that Jonathan had left. Right? And that's it. That's just like an in brackets, he's with these guys. Interesting, though, that Ichabod, so that we, he's with Ichabod's nephew, right? And he's a relative of this priest, Eli, If you read back, you find out that Ichabod means the glory has departed. And he was so named because his mother kind of miscarried, gave birth early, premature birth, in shock when she heard that the Ark of the Covenant had been stolen by the Philistines. She's dying and she's giving birth to this this boy and she names him Ichabod, which means the glory has departed. And that's, who, and that's the nephew. And the rest of the family tree that's named there are only mentioned in negative lights in previous chapters. Eli was far from God. The word of the Lord was rare in Eli's time as a priest when Samuel gets born and, and the beginning of this whole book opens up. So Saul's company that he's chosen is a bunch of guys who are familiar with the things of God. And Eli's, Eli's sons were wicked, they were really, really bad, you know. They did their priestly stuff, but they were ripping people off. They, they were just wrong. And, um, and that's why God raises Samuel up. But Saul is now hanging out with this clan, this group of people who are familiar with the things of God, but not into the move of God. And that's just a dangerous place to be, guys, because actually the devil loves it when you when you kind of feel like you're safe. You're with the priest, you're hanging out with the priest and he's got the ephod and everything. And I've grown up in church, I, I, I probably only missed a couple of Sundays in my whole life since being a newborn. And and I've seen many churches and many Christians. I've grown up with Christian friends my own age. And I know what it's like to to hang around the things of God and be familiar. I know what it's like to play in a worship team and, 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 and be around people in a worship team, but actually be far from God. And taking comfort and sitting with people who will sulk with you and commiserate. And the enemy's just really happy about that. Because you're kind of, you're lulled into a false sense of security. And for, for, the, for the devil, that is the perfect damage limitation exercise for the kingdom of darkness. You're not going to do them any damage. You're just going to sit with, a, sit with a, a useless priest in this story. But I mean, who are you sitting with? I've said it before, who are you sitting with? Who are you keeping company with? Are you going to get in a group when you realise that the enemy is pressing in hard? Are you going to get in a group of people who are full of faith, who are full of hope and even in the midst of the storm seem to resonate some sort of bizarre joy because they know that God is on their side and if God is for us, who can be against us? Who can stop the hand of the Lord? Are you going to hang about with those people even if it just feels a bit challenging at times? That's why I love home groups. That's why I think home groups are so important for so many of us. We get together in a small group, not like this, where it's like this auditorium-style thing, and you're all listening to me, and I love the limelight. That's fine for me. But you need to discuss this stuff. You need to, to work it out together. That's his, ho- that's, that's his home group. That's Saul's little home group under the pomegranate tree. Right, on each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach, the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One was called Boses and the other Seneh. The one cliff stood to the north towards Michmash, the other to the south towards Geba. Jonathan said to his young armour bearer, "'Come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men.' Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Here's the thing. A little bit of a dangerous thing to do, but he's focusing not on a word of revelation, let's go out and do this because God has told me to go up this cliff and fight them. He's focusing on the character of God, Nothing can stop the Lord from saving. And I just feel like it's important that you focus on the character of God. When you don't have revelation as to where to move forward, when you're in that waiting room, you focus on the character of God. Nothing can stop the Lord from saving. The, the, the Lord is good. He is powerful. He is almighty. He sees everything. He's my ever-present help in times of trouble. He is always with me. I will focus on your character. And as I build myself up, I think, do you know what? I could even take these guys out. I could do this with God, because God can't help but save me. It's in his nature to save. So I'm just going just to just put a feeler out here. It's only an outpost. I'm, I'm a, Jonathan's a brilliant archer. So, I mean, he could be relying on his own strength a little bit, but he's a brilliant archer. His his tribe is archers, and he's a master archer, and he can take out some guys. We'll take them by surprise. Actually, he doesn't. He says, let's let's let them know we're here. I mean, just just watch this. Uh, Nothing can save the Lord. Sorry, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Numbers don't matter. Faith doesn't look at numbers. Faith looks at the character of God. And wouldn't you love to have friends like this? Do all that you have in mind, his armor bearer said. Go ahead, I am with you, heart and soul. And I reckon that's that spirit that Jonathan caught hold of when he he worked with David later on. Do what you've got in mind. I'm with you. Let's do this. Don't you want friends like that? I'm, I'm recruiting, so if anybody wants to be a friend like that, count me in. Jonathan said, come on then, we will cross over towards them and let them see us. That's a good idea, isn't it? And let them see us. If they say to us, so this is where he puts out what Christians often call, he puts out a fleece. Because Gideon put out a fleece once and said, God, if it's wet in the morning, I'm going to do X, Y, or Z, and if it's dry, and then Gideon keeps doing that. Now, I don't recommend putting out fleeces, but what I do recommend is you seek God's counsel somehow, you find a way of getting a little bit of confirmation. I've focused on his character, I'm moving forward, but along the way, I'm prayerfully considering my actions and asking the Lord for a sign. So he said, that's what he's doing here. If they say to us, wait there until we come to you, uh, we're going to scarper. Um, we will we'll stay where we are, actually, and we'll not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, we will climb up, because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. So he does wait for a little bit of confirmation. So don't just rush off thinking, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z for God, because who can stop him from saving? Um, There is deliberation in the plan and an opportunity for God to step in, and you've got to find the right way of doing that. So both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. woo (laughs) It's just mad. Um, I would have expected Jonathan, the master archer, just to sneak up and and start taking him out with his bow and arrow. "'Look,' said the Philistines, "'the Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they were hiding in.' The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armour-bearer, "'Come up to us and we'll teach you a lesson.' So Jonathan said to his armour-bearer, "'Climb up after me. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel.' Jonathan climbed up using his hands and his feet, with his armor bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan. Now it doesn't talk about him firing any arrows, but I'm going to assume, um, unless this was a miracle of God where just they just fell before him, which could well have happened. I'm just going to assume God used his ability as, as a he's on his hands and feet. Remember, so he's of in stealth mode, climbing up this cliff, and he's starting to starting to pick them off. It's not a major army he's taking on; it's an outpost. Um, So the Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armour bearer followed and killed behind him. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armour bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about half an acre. Then panic struck the whole army. The faith of one guy and his mate. So the faith of two guys and the whole nation was stirred. Keep watching. Those in the camp and field and those in the outposts and raiding parties and the ground shook. It was the panic sent by God. Saul's lookouts. Now Saul's still, I'm, I believe, Saul. He doesn't say he was sulking. I think he was sulking. Um, Paul's still sulking over in Gibeah under the pomegranate tree, but he's got lookouts. And they saw the army melting away in all directions, This army as vast as the grains of sand on the seashore, it melting away, this is the power of your God, he hasn't changed. Then Saul said to the men who were with him, muster the forces and see who's left us, because he wants to know who's gone to make this happen, because Jonathan's gone and not told his dad, so he's trying to find out who's Who's gone missing? Uh, they find out that it's Jonathan and his armor bearer. And Saul says to Ahijah, "Bring the Ark of God." That's a very unusual phrase. Normally, it's bring the ephod, uh, and we, because when you're wearing the ephod, you can inquire of God what His plan is. But I just wonder if, being with Ichabod, the glory—well, the relative of Ichabod, the glory has departed. Remember that time when the Ark of the Covenant was stolen? Bring the Ark. Let's guard the Ark. Um, or maybe he just wants to inquire of the Lord in a, in a different way, but normally the, the ark wasn't used. Um, while Saul was talking to the priests, the tumult in the Philistine camp increased more and more. So Saul said, withdraw your hand. In other words, don't, don't worry about the ark. Don't, <laughs> you don't need to do anything here. Uh, God's on the move. Uh, we're out of the picture. We're not even needed here. Um, Saul and all his men assembled and went to the battle. They found the Philistines in total confusion, striking each other with their swords. Those Hebrews who had previously been with the Philistines had gone up with them to their camp, went over to the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. When all the Israelites who had hidden in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were on the run, they joined the battle in hot pursuit. So on that day, the Lord saved Israel. Not Jonathan saved Israel, the Lord saved Israel, and the battle moved on beyond Beth Avon. So to summarize Saul's behavior, though I wanted to bring out, because it's a challenge to me as a human being who loves God and wants to serve his purposes, he reacts to situations, He's based on circumstances, He's based on feels, feelings and pressure. And I think his key phrase is, "I felt compelled." He's just reacting. Whereas Jonathan, on the other hand, and I know I'm simplifying things, but this is just what I felt was right to bring out today, takes action based on God's character regardless of circumstances. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. Despite our excuses, despite the things that hold us back, despite our fears and our failures of the past, nothing can stop the safety net of God catching you Even if you make a mistake, he will reroute that satnav. There will be consequences, but he will always save you. He will always lead you out of whatever pickle you get yourself in. So, five things to say. Number one, whatever you're going through, focus first on God's character. Directional prophecy is very rare. A lot of the words we get are very based on God's character, if you think about it. Very rare that God gives you a really clear direction of what to do. And when he does, and you know it's him, you've got to act. But very often, all he wants you to do is prove your trust by focusing on his character. The second thing to notice is the size of the enemy is not your problem. So while you're focusing on God's character, it'll be very easy to take care of the second point. The size of the enemy is not your problem. The third point I wanted to say was God is never late, but he will often make make you wait. God is never late, but He will make you wait, or He'll often make you wait. There are some suddenlies in the Bible, but they're often after a long wait. Number four, you can hang out with your Christians and still miss God's move. Oh, it's a bit of a challenge, isn't it? Just some observations. You can hang out with Christians and still miss God's move. We we heard um, a word last week saying He's coming. He's coming. He's going to do some stuff. Are you ready? Are there some idols that you need to be dealing with? We don't normally talk about idolatry, but last week that was a thing. Andrew and I were talking this week about greed being an idol. It's very easy just to slip into, you know, thinking about things that have nothing to do with God and what, what he's got for us. It's very easy to hang out with the things of God. You know, you know what I'm referring to in that point, don't you, about Saul and Ahijah and, and the things of God. Um, but still miss the move of God. So go back to number one, focus on his character. And finally, look for his leading like Jonathan did and take action. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we choose to focus right now on your, on your greatness, your character. We thank you that you are a God of love. In fact, you are Love. We thank you that you are all powerful. We thank you that you are all knowing. You know everything that's going on in every heart right now, in every mind right now, even the minds that are distracted from my voice. You know every heart, every mind, every soul. You know everything. You are ever present also. You are with us now and you are with us tomorrow. You're with us in the night when we wake up. You are always with us. You're with us when we make mistakes. There is no point where you will leave us as orphans. You are a good, God, we focus on your character and we thank you for your greatness. We thank you that despite your greatness and my sinfulness you still choose to use me and welcome me into your fold. I thank you in the name of Jesus for the power of the cross that brings me into salvation. Thank you for the resurrection. Thank you for your Holy Spirit and I just pray that you will lead us as individuals and as a church that fellowship together into the things that you have got for us for we believe you are on the move. We believe You're going to do great things in this town and in our lives. We pray that it will be evidenced by healings and by miracles and by a sign that we haven't seen before, signs that we haven't seen before, that you are doing a new thing in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information, visit Brixham.church.